Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System, and I want to start out by saying a huge thank you to all of our dedicated listeners. And I want to welcome a very special co-host to the studio today. I have Sandy Werness from the Walter and Jean Book Global Autoimmune Institute here with me. Sandy's been a longtime partner of our program, and I'm so glad she, she could join me. Welcome, Sandy. Thank you. Today's podcast is going to shed some light on the concept of the microbiome and its possible link to the brain and disorders like dementia and Parkinson's. For years, we've heard that our diets could possibly be linked to different diseases, but connections between our guts and our brains? How can that be? To help our listeners better understand what the microbiome really is and these possible connections to brain disorders, I have Dr. Aileen Cherubati in the studio with us. Dr. Cherubati is the director of the Center for Inflammatory Bowel Disease at Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington, D.C., and very knowledgeable on this topic. Welcome, Dr. Cherubati. I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Sandy. So most of today's questions come from an article that were published a few weeks ago in the New York Times that shed a really bright light on the microbiome and its connection to neurological issues. The article made a lot of big statements, so I want to take a step back for our listen- listeners to help them really understand it. So can you start out by just telling us what the microbiome is and how it affects our daily lives and overall health? Yes, so the microbiome refers to a collection of trillions of organisms, It's actually 100 trillion of organisms that live and flourish inside our gut. We actually have 10 times more microbes in our body than human cells, and these microbes contain 100 times more genes than what we have in our human cells. So, you know, you can say we're more microbe than humans overall, <laughs> and we live in a, yeah, we live in real harmony with our gut microbiome. So we don't think of it as you know germs and and pathogens and uh, things that affect us negatively. We actually think of our body and our microbiome as two uh, systems living together in harmony. The microbiome plays a really important role in our metabolism, our nutrition our physiology, and our immune function. Uh, For example, the gut microbiome helps in fermenting dietary fiber. When we eat fiber that's not digestible, the gut microbiome helps in fermenting it and produce uh, substances that are good for us, like short-chain fatty acids. And these type of fatty acids keep the lining of the gut healthy and strong so it can um, uh, protect us against uh, potentially invasive bacteria and... uh, uh, factors in the environment that can affect us negatively. Um, The gut microbiome also plays a very important role in our gut immune system. It really helps our gut uh, immune system train uh, into recognizing what are the good bacteria, the bad bacteria, and it really trains the lymphocytes, the the cells uh, involved in our immune system, to secrete 
pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory substances. So uh, with all that, um, the composition of our gut microbiome is then very important. Very important to have a healthy gut microbiome that helps us uh, have a healthy uh, gut and healthy body. And the composition of the microbiome and how it behaves and how diverse it is, is really shaped by our environment. Um, what I mean by that is that the type of organisms we have in our microbiome and how diverse our microbiome is and what these organisms are doing at a point in time, what kind of substance they're producing, what kind of protein they are making that can affect our body, all this is affected and shaped by our environment. And this research actually starts very early in life. Uh, we believe that even when we're in the womb, our mother's own microbiome and diet affect uh, you know, the, the infant microbiome. Uh, the method of delivery, if you have a vaginal delivery, your microbiome is richer than if you have a more sterile procedure of delivery like C-section. Breastfeeding seems to also help as opposed to formula feeding in terms of uh, increasing diversity and richness of microbiome. Uh, when we introduce solid food, whether we've been exposed to antibiotics as children, so all these is really going to affect uh, our microbiome composition. And, and this interaction between the environment and the microbiome really continues throughout our lives. So, which means uh, the microbiome can change in composition and diversity in our lifespan as a consequence of what we eat, if we smoke, uh, if we have, um, are physically active, if we exercise, uh, what kind of stress we're subjected to, how we manage stress, if we have a pet at home. Everything in our environment actually really uh, shape and modify our uh, microbiome. So like you point out, Vanessa, in recent years, we started to understand that our microbiome and, and a potential imbalance in our gut microbiome can uh, really affect our GI health and certain GI diseases like irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. So that kind of makes sense that the bacteria living in our gut will affect our gut health. But now we're starting to see that our gut microbiome also affects non-GI diseases like obesity, type 2 diabetes, autoimmune diseases, but also uh, brain diseases and brain behavior, if you want, like Parkinson or Alzheimer and autism. So we're really entering a new world uh, that uh, is helping us see that our gut microbiome can really affect our entire body health. That's so interesting. And you know, when you started saying this in the beginning, when you said that, you know, our bodies are made up of more microbes than they are of um, human cells, I immediately had this image of my like two little boys dressing up at Halloween as like a superhero of the microbiome. <laughs> But that, like, maybe we need to train our kids to be, like, superheroes of the microbiome, you know, to really teach them early to build up health. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail from the very important things you said, but it made me think of, of superheroes. So, Dr. Sherabadi, that is the cutest thing ever to think about. So, Dr. Sherabadi, how much do we know and what do we know about how the microbiome influences the brain and behavior. What's going on in science and what do you see as a physician? What are your thoughts? 
Right. So, uh, you know, adding the microbiome to the mix of what can cause diseases is, is really interesting. So, you know, so far, what uh, the, the way we look at things is that patients who develop certain diseases often have an underlying genetic predisposition to develop that disease. There's often a family history of autoimmune disease and those who develop an autoimmune disease. Uh, there's often a family history of GI illness or behavioral disease. Um, however, uh, we also know that a genetic predisposition alone doesn't necessarily produce a disease. And we see that typically, if you want, in studies of twins, identical twins with same genetic making, they don't necessarily develop the same disease. So we know that there's a role in, of the environment. There are certain environmental factors that unmask a genetic predisposition or tendency to develop the disease. And where we see the microbiome is that this could be the link on how the environment affects the development of a disease. So the environment affecting the microbiome, the microbiome leading to a disease. And so there's this very complex interaction between inherited genes, the environment, and the gut microbiome. So the way I see things is that if you're exposed to certain environmental factors, it changes the gut microbiome, and this in turn will lead the disease only in a susceptible person, right? So. You know, you, you'll see, you know, I was just going to talk in general, you'll see smokers, some will de develop lung cancer, some won't. You, you'll see uh, uh, people who drink alcohol, some will develop alcohol-related disease and some won't. So the, the same exposure to the environment uh, only leads uh, to the disease by changing the microbiome in people who are susceptible to developing the disease. Or the other way to look at it is that when you have a certain genetic predisposition, to a disease, and that along with certain environmental factors, both select for certain organism in the gut and modify uh, the makeup and the behavior of the gut microbiome. So whether it's the environment that changes the gut microbiome and that leads to disease to a susceptible uh, individual, or it's the genetics that along with the environment change the gut microbiome and that in turn uh, leads to the disease in you know, either case, this new microbiome becomes the driver of uh, the immune system behavior and the nerve signaling, signaling that we have in our gut. The microbiome becomes very important in training and transforming immune cells of the gut and producing signals in the nerve ending of the gut that can then travel through the bloodstream and through the nerves from the gut to other organs like the brain and affect brain behavior and brain diseases. Does this make sense? Yeah, yeah, so there's a great new development or great new um, opening up of a field in medicine, which is to try to discover the actual um, bases or mechanism within the brain that, or the pathway through the body into the brain and back and the communication, the way the communication is actually um, completed uh, in the gut-brain so can you can you speak to that? There are now some going hypotheses about maybe what where that signaling in the brain is taking place. You know, we, we always think about we always thought about the brain as an isolated uh, organ in our body that we have the blood brain barrier that prevents any uh, microbe, any organism, and many substances from getting into the brain. But what we're seeing now is is uh, that the explanation between the brain and the gut axis is that there's a what we call bidirectional effect. That the gut affects the brain through signaling um, uh, via the nerve ending from the gut to the brain, or 
by uh, promoting certain immune cells in behaving a certain way, and that get transmitted to uh, the immune behavior in the brain. And then the other loop that we see is the brain, how it influences the gut. So a lot of studies have been done looking at, uh, for example, uh, certain behavior or certain stressors, how they actually uh, cause more gut injury. Uh, we know that if you're in a stressful situation, you can have ulcers in, in your stomach. We know that stress changes the neurotransmitter and the microbiome in the gut and can cause inflammatory bowel disease. So there is definitely a communication that can go back and forth. Where exactly this happens in the brain, I'm not sure. Um, but what we know now is that gut-brain access is really bi-directional and there's a great deal of communication between the two. So, you know, these old days where like people would say, oh, I have a gut feeling or, you know, what you, it's all in your head uh, to, to talk about physical symptoms, they actually have a scientific base. Now we know it's not just a, uh, you know, a, theory, a theory, but there are physical changes that happen in the gut immunity, in the brain immunity, in the uh, neuro signaling between these two organs, and they affect each other and can really make a shift in terms of health or diseases. Can you tell us what they have found about how stress might change and influence the microbiome? So, you know, there was a recent meeting, um, you know, my main area of interest is inflammatory bowel disease. And in our recent meeting, you know, uh, people are really looking at uh, how stress affects inflammatory bowel disease. Because for the longest time, patients would tell us after a severe stress, a severe stressful situation, they develop inflammatory bowel disease, or once they already have inflammatory bowel disease, when they stress, they do flare, they have inflammation in their gut, and they, they have symptoms. And for the longest time, unfortunately, the uh, medical community didn't think that stress was playing a role. It, it didn't make sense to us that something so abstract and emotional would actually affect something so physical and organic and, you know, active inflammation in the gut. But there's more and more now study looking at, into that. And patients were right, of course, as usual, we should always listen to our patients, that stress actually changes uh, the, the gut microbiome, the composition of the gut microbiome, the behavior of those organisms. You know, you can have an organism in your gut and it's not doing anything. And under certain environmental factors, including uh, stress uh, and signal coming uh, from the brain to the gut, those organisms become active and start producing certain protein or certain uh, uh, substances that promote more inflammation and block the anti-inflammatory pathway. Uh, so we are now looking into that and, and, and trying to understand how stress physically changes uh, things at the cellular level, at the immune level, at the neurotransmitter level, and how this whole... Um, uh, concept that uh, things are isolated on is not true. Everything really is very intrinsically connected between nerve, microbiome, immunity, and overall um, gut and extra gut health. So, Dr. Chairbody, I want to talk about antibiotics for a minute. You know, as a mom of two little okay. kids, my kids are always, it seems like, taking an antibiotic, whether it's strep throat or an ear infection or pink eye, it seems like there's always some antibiotic that I'm picking up at the, at the drugstore. So we've heard for some time that antibiotics can be harmful for gut health, but some of these new studies um, suggest that clearing out our gut microbes is what has actually lessened these protein clumps that are being linked to dementia. What could this mean for potential treatment options in the future? 
Right. So this is really interesting because, you know, like anything in life, there's nothing that's purely evil or purely good. Uh, antibiotic really uh, changed our lifespan and our uh, capa- capacity to fight infections and really prolonged life now by um, treating infection. But at the same time, uh, what we've seen um, uh, in the westernized uh, world where we start using more antibiotics, we have less infection, but we see more and more other type of diseases like autoimmune diseases and inflammatory bowel disease, etc. So we know that what the antibiotic, antibiotics are doing to our gut microbiome uh, could be unhealthy. So just to go back to our topic, uh, you know, like I mentioned, the microbiome is made of trillions of organisms with very complex interaction between each other and the gut. And different organisms can play a protective role against certain disease or they can promote and trigger illnesses depending on their behavior. So the composition and the behavior of the gut microbiome uh, can uh, be positively or negatively affected by an antibiotic. Um, you know, despite the advantages of antibiotic, maybe in the future, well, we, uh, or the disadvantages of antibiotic, um, maybe in the future we can target certain pro-inflammatory organisms in our microbiome that play a role in certain diseases like dementia with very targeted antibiotic or with different microbiome manipulation, maybe you know fecal transplant or a, a very highly uh, well-designed probiotic that delivers certain uh, anti-inflammatory organisms to the gut, and with the hope that this can reverse or stop the progression of the disease. So the way I see it is one of the goals of future research is really to determine which microbiome signature affects the development of specific illness how we can manipulate the gut microbiome to change or reverse the course of the disease, and uh, how to use things judiciously. So, again, antibiotics have been shown to promote certain illnesses, but maybe they have a role in others. And maybe we can manipulate the microbiome in a way uh, that doesn't have to use antibiotics, like with diet or, uh, like I mentioned, fecal transplant or very high-end probiotic pills. So this is all very scary to a mom who doesn't understand all of this, you know? So, you know, should you, when you go to your pediatrician because your child has strep throat and they, you know, give them penicillin, should you be worried about it damaging their microbiome and then someday they're going to get dementia from having strep throat? Oh my goodness, no. So, uh, you know, like any, uh, <laughs> now you're scaring me as a physician. No, but, you know, any medical decision we make, you know, every day when I see patients in clinic, the decision that we make uh, when we want to treat something, uh, treat an illness, is what are the risks and the benefits, right? So if your child or if yourself need an antibiotic to fight an infection that has, uh, can have potentially really um, a, a big complications, you need that antibiotic. What's happening now is that we are uh, overusing antibiotics. Uh, so, uh, you know, as, uh, and often this is driven by concerned parents or concerned individuals that every time there's a little bit of fever or something for ourselves or for our children, we want to take antibiotics because we don't want to be sick for too long. We don't want to miss work. We, we, we can't function if we're sick. We're just trying to move on with our lives. And uh, for physicians, there might be some kind of pressure that to do something. You know, it's it's easier to prescribe something than to say, you know what, let's sit and wait for a few days and see. This could be a viral illness, and you might not need antibiotics. On the other hand, we're ingesting antibiotics 
uh, almost all the time without us knowing. You know, we were talking a little bit offline how, uh, you know, a lot of our um, uh, food products are full with antibiotics. Our chickens are being given antibiotic and other things like growth hormone, all these things. And we are ingesting the chicken. So even when you're eating a healthy, you know, healthy and, and, and want to do the best effort to, um, you know, make your microbiome healthy. Uh, when we eat chicken that's full of antibiotic, we are ingesting that antibiotic too, and that can also affect our gut microbiome. So the bottom line here is when you need a treatment, when the benefit of the treatment outweigh the risk, you need to have it, including antibiotic. But if we don't need that, if you if we do not need uh, the antibiotic, let's not have that knee-jerk reflex of, of taking antibiotic or asking for antibiotic from our physician. And us as physician, we need to be better at not using wide-spectrum antibiotic when it's not needed, really using the antibiotic that is needed only for a specific condition when we're treating that, and only use antibiotic when it's needed, when we're suspecting a true bacterial infection. So, yes, if your son has a strep throat, he needs to take his antibiotic. <laughs> but, you know, uh, if you have a viral illness, you know, and there's no um, proof that there's a bacterial infection, then it's important to say, you know, I'm just going to let that viral illness take its course and and resolve on its own and not have that safety, you know, uh, uh, feeling of the antibiotic doing something and, and, and having to take an antibiotic necessarily. Does this make sense? Yes, definitely. That's great. What yeah, a thorough so explanation. Oh, you, you, so, you're, yeah, you are a good mother taking <laughs> your son. <laughs> yeah, the and you will not cause dementia, okay? Awesome. <laughs> so in a recent study, found that when um, a certain bacteria was emitted or absent from the microbiome of mice, that the mice had, a, had autism uh, behavioral uh, features or behaviors. So, and when they added the bacteria back in, then they, the mice began to uh, act more normally with more normal social characteristics. So um, what are your thoughts about this study in relation to the possibility that there might be, first of all, a microbiome association with autism, and secondly, that perhaps maybe there'll even be some kind of a treatment or even a cure for autism someday? Yeah, this is really actually fascinating data that brings a lot of hope for many illnesses, including autism, that have been kind of difficult to define and, and treat with, um, you know, traditional medication, if you want. And uh, the way, uh, you know, you described the experience very nicely with, with, with the fecal transplant from one mice to another. You know, one of the ways scientists are trying to define the role of the microbiome with illness is, um, you know, uh, is to prove that the microbiome is causing the illness and not that the illness is modifying the microbiome. Um, you, like you said, you know, you can find certain bacteria missing or, uh, in, or uh, on the other hand, present in a higher amount than normal microbiome, if you want, or healthy microbiome with certain diseases. Mm -hmm. But we need to prove that it's the microbiome causing the disease and not vice versa because some people with certain illness can alter their diet and their lifestyle and that can change the gut microbiome. So what scientists have been doing, and you describe it very nicely, is that they take these mice with a certain illness and they transfer the stool, so with all that rich microbiome in there, into the gut of mice that are germ-free. So these are mice that are germ-free. Uh, so all the changes due to the microbiome is due to the, that transplanted 
store. And they see how those mice, uh, be, uh, behavior or, or disease uh, uh, development changes. And this is how we can prove that it's actually the microbiome driving the illness and not the other stuff. So um, what is interesting in the um, autism uh, um, uh, studies on mice is that the researcher looked at two types of mice who exhibited uh, autistic behavior. One was a, a mice that had a genetic mutation that caused autistic behavior. And one was uh, mice whose moms were on a high-fat diet and who also exhibited autistic uh, behavior. So I found it fascinating that uh, we really see here how genetic can play a role, the environment can play a role, the diet, and the um, subsequent microbiome uh, type that comes out from the genetic influence, the diet influence. So these two types of mice with autistic behavior uh, were found to lack a certain strain of lactobacillus. And when uh, this bacteria was added to the diet of these mice, they become more social. Their behavior changes and become more social. And what they found is that that bacteria, that particular lactobacillus strain, uh, triggers a signal in the gut nerve ending that gets transmitted to the brain. And in the brain that uh, affected the production of certain hormones that promote social bonding. So there's really physical and neurological and physiologic and hormonal changes that are all playing a role into changing the, those mice behavior. So, you know, again, this data is really fascinating and very encouraging in terms of looking at treating certain disease from a different angle instead of like uh, psychotropic medication or psychotherapy and things like that, we could have the option of manipulating the microbiome. Um, but I want to put a word of caution there. It is fantastic. It's really, really exciting. And then I think for uh, parents with autistic kids or people living with autism, this is really offers a, a new hope. Um, but um, I want to put a word of caution there that it's not going to be as simple as taking a probiotic pill. Um, because like I mentioned already in the mice area, you know, not all strains of lactobacillus change the behavior of the mice. And like we described, there's this whole interaction of bacteria, hormone, um, uh, neurological transmission that leads to the change of behavior. Um, so it's not simple in mice, and humans are usually more complex than mice. So we can expect that there's going to be uh, a more complex story for, for humans, that maybe there's a group of organisms involved in human behavior as opposed to just one strain. Uh, so what we need to do is uh, really better understand the interaction between the different organisms in the microbiome with the brain function. We need to better identify which strain and which strain behavior we need to add or, or subtract to the human microbiome. We do need to know what is the right dose of that strain that we need to give to humans to help with certain diseases. So there's a lot of work that still needs to be done from mice to human trials. Um, but I do believe there's a lot of hope. Uh, and But I just want to put a word of caution that, you know, when, when there are scientific discoveries there and people are really, really looking for a treatment for uh, very difficult to treat diseases, there's really a tendency to then um, go and start buying, you know, certain probiotic or uh, often there are certain claims on the internet that they, there's magic pill that's going to help you or help your child. So it's very important not to fall um, into pseudoscience and, and really wait for 
the data to get more refined and more precise in what we can do for the patient. I'm really glad that you said that. Um, after this article came out, I saw it posted in a number of um, Facebook groups, most of which are, are gluten-free groups, but one of them has a particularly high number of members that their kids have autism and they've been trying a gluten-free diet um, to, to see if it works for them. And so somebody posted a comment in response to this article saying, going to Costco to stock up on yogurt. So thinking that perhaps right. the right. probiotics and right. yogurt right. would, you know, help their child's right. um, social interactions. Right. It, so. it, I'm glad you brought this up because, again, you know, and I do understand, you know, how people think. You know, there's there's a scientific discovery and nobody wants to wait for the final results because everybody wants to do what's best for themselves or for their child or for their loved one. So I do understand that. But the issue is, um, is uh, we're not there yet, one. Two, not all probiotics are the same. Uh, you know, there is a nice study that was done a few years ago that looked at uh, probiotics being sold, and only a small uh, proportion of these probiotics actually contain what they claim they contain. So wow. that's one thing to think about, that, you know, these probiotics are not regulated. Uh, you know, every probiotic... Uh, brand has different strains with different amount of that strain, different quantity, different, you know, and, 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 and different uh, ways of, uh, these strains need to stay alive. So if, if these probiotics are not made in a way that um, that capsule would keep those probiotics alive, then you're just taking a, an empty pill, basically. And then finally, there was a recent study looking at probiotic effect that not all probiotic effect is positive. You know, we, we became a society where probiotic is part of healthy living, but um, there's a nice study that looked at that, and some people taking probiotic actually experience more symptoms, more GI symptoms or feeling foggy and not being able to focus because, again, we don't know yet which probiotic, which strain, which uh, combination of strains we each need for a healthier living. So I wouldn't just take a probiotic for the sake of taking it unless there's good data behind it and uh, and, and really a good trust that that probiotic maker is, a, is, a, is an honest maker and what's in there is really what's, um, uh, what they claim to have. What are your thoughts about particular diet, ketogenic or paleo diet, and how they relate to the microbiome and how they might influence the course of gut disease or even other disorders? So um, I'm glad you asked that. So just as a disclaimer, and I might offend other people, but I'm a true believer of Mediterranean diet. And there's a lot of data showing that the Mediterranean diet being rich in fruits and vegetables and legumes and, and fish and, uh, uh, you know, they do eat less um, red meat and they eat some uh, eggs and some poultry. But there's, there's good data that Mediterranean diet actually is really a good diet for many things. Cardiovascular health, GI health, um, you know, it's been studied now in inflammatory bowel disease. So as a general concept, I like the Mediterranean diet. Now... I do understand it's not for everybody, and, 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 and I don't, and I think like everything in life, there's not one diet for everybody. There's not one lifestyle for everybody. There's not one exercise that's good for everybody, right? So, in terms of the keto and the paleo diet, it's, uh, it's been shown in, in, in some patients, again, the keto and paleo diet, for those that are not familiar with that, are diets that are high in protein and fat and low in carbs. And in some patients with seizure disorder, um, we noticed that uh, being on a keto or paleo diet uh, does decrease uh, seizure episodes 
in some patients. And the thought is that these diets will affect the composition of the gut microbiome, which in turn affects the um, brain and seizure activity. So um, there are some researchers that look uh, that looked into that hypothesis, and the way they tested it, they took a stool from mice who were on the keto diet and transplanted it to germ-free mice that have a seizure disorder. And these mice had a decrease in their seizure activity, which implied that by manipulating the gut microbiome, we can affect the brain electrical activity. So these are very interesting findings, but again, um, it's, it's not enough to recommend these diets for everyone with seizure um, because uh, not everybody with seizure has the same uh, cause of seizure, same electrophysiology, etc. But in my opinion, and again, I'm not a neurologist, but in my opinion, I think it's worth a try. If people are suffering from a seizure, especially if it's a seizure that's difficult to control uh, or they're having um, uh, you know, side effects from their medication and they want to cut down on the number of medication uh, that they are on, it's worth a try. But that's very important to do in conjunction with the treating physician. You know, as physicians, we get very frustrated when patients are doing uh, things without telling us. We are open to um, to discussion. We are we, we want to help patients in any way we can. But when patients do things without telling the treating physician, there might be consequences to what they're doing that we're not aware of. So it's very important to have an honest and open discussion with a treating neurologist that, you know, we want to try this diet and see what happens. Because like this, your physician can monitor for the efficacy of this. If this is working, great. If it's not working, there's no point in continuing, um, you know, a high, uh, a diet high in protein and fat and, and restricted in, in uh, carbs. It's important to monitor for safety. Uh, these diets can cause certain deficiencies in certain things, um, in certain nutrients. Some can cause injury. You know, a, uh, you know, we know for example that. Um, you know, a diet that's very rich in animal protein has been associated with an increased risk of colon cancer. So when you are uh, manipulating the diet in an extreme way, like the keto and the paleo does, it's really important to discuss it with a physician and uh, discuss the risk and the benefit. Uh, and this needs to be done on a case-by-case basis. And of course, if there's a benefit in terms of uh, helping with seizure activity, it makes sense to on it, but also to be monitored for potential side effects and nutrient deficiency. And if there's no benefit, then this is not um, what the issue is for that particular patient. Wonderful. That's so clear. Thank you so much. That's fantastic. So Dr. Chayabadi, these studies are definitely just the tip of the iceberg on this topic. Do you have any potential theories or hopes for the future of research into the microbiome? Absolutely. I think really the microbiome is a really fascinating universe and very promising. And we, like you said, this is just the tip of the iceberg. We're just starting to explore it and to look at the connection between the microbiome and GI illnesses and non-GI illnesses and how we can understand it. But again, this is this is a huge universe, um, trillions of organisms, trillions of interaction and possibility. Uh, so uh, I, I think the... the there's a lot of excitement there. I think there's a lot of hope. Um, but I think we have to look at data with um, uh, kind of uh, our uh, realistic and objective and scientific glasses. Um, but what I would recommend is until we have more data on how to manipulate the microbiome to reverse diseases or stop their progression, we can actually all take simple steps that promote a healthy and a diverse gut microbiome. 
you know, look at your diet, avoid processed food, avoid refined and added sugar, have a diversified diet, rich in fruits, vegetables, legumes, fish, different sources of protein. I always tell people, make your plate look like the rainbow. Uh, like we talked about, avoid antibiotics if you don't need them, if you're dealing with a viral illness. Uh, choose a physical activity that you enjoy and do it regularly. Uh, it's been um, described that physical activity affects the microbiome in a very positive way. It makes it more diverse and increase the microorganisms that make those short-chain fatty acids that are so protective to our gut. And, you know, we, we live a crazy modern life. And uh, we talked about how stress can affect the microbiome. So find a stress management strategy that works for you, whether it's meditation, yoga, mindfulness, walking in nature, boxing, whatever <laughs> helps you relieve that stress on a regular basis, do it. So that we are helping our microbiome remaining rich and healthy and diverse. And what I really think is also is helpful beyond medicine and beyond food and all this is really connection, social connections, uh, you know, I think interactions, uh, spending time with friends and family, this is something we often forget in our modern and busy life, uh, you know, have a good laugh, I think that really is very helpful for our health and for our microbiome, we will keep ourselves and microbiome happy, so, you know, have a healthy diet, healthy lifestyle, to try maybe to prevent certain illnesses until we get more data on how to reverse certain disease processes. That is such a great point. Um, I'm so glad you said that about social connections and, and your friends and family. It's such an important part of our lives that we often forget about contributing to our overall health. So I'm really glad you said that. Well, I want to thank you so much for all of this well, great... we're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so Wonderful. much for all of this great information, Dr. Cherubati. It is absolutely fascinating and I know that it's going to help our listeners better understand this very important topic. I know it definitely helps me understand it a lot more. But we are all out of time for today. I hope that everyone enjoyed today's podcast and I will talk to you again next time. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.